It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. In her latest book, psychotherapist Lori Gottlieb explores the human condition through the lives of four patients. She began to write about her patients while also receiving therapy. Gottlieb realized her personal story of upheaval and the treatment she was receiving had a place in the book. My greatest credential as a therapist is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race, that I use my humanity every moment in the therapy room. I'm not talking about my personal life, but I'm using my life experience to help somebody else with their life experience. Today, Gottlieb talks about her book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Lori Gottlieb was struggling with a romantic relationship when she was counseling patients. One patient was diagnosed with terminal cancer, another estranged from her children, a third couldn't sleep and thought everyone around him was an idiot, and the final patient struggled with drinking and hooking up with the wrong people. All of these problems, including our own, boil down to basic questions we all ask ourselves, says Gottlieb. So we're all asking, basically, how do I love and be loved and how do I deal with a world of uncertainty? Those would be the core questions that we ask in all kinds of different ways. So the patients that I chose, I feel like they look very different on the surface, but we can see aspects of ourselves in all of them. Gottlieb speaks with Tara Westover, author of Educated. Their conversation may provide insight on struggles, large and small, in your own life. Here's Tara Westover. I tell people that this book is about um, a therapist and her patients, and then the therapist goes to therapy. There's like a lot of therapy in this book. And I, I think people either have, they have pretty strong reactions to that. I think they either are immediately interested or like physically recoil from that because I think people have those kind of reactions to therapy in general. Um, so I wanted to start off with your own kind of uh, experience of therapy. What took you to therapy? You write, you write this book, there are four stories, four patients, and then a fifth patient, which is you. Right. What, what, what took you to therapy? What made you decide, actually, I need, I need a little help processing my life right now? Right. So in the book, um, originally, I was going to write about the four patients that I write about, and maybe you should talk to someone. But... Um, Something was going on in my life at the same time that I was their clinician, which was I was experiencing an upheaval in my life, and I did go to therapy. And I felt like it would almost be disingenuous to write about these people and have them be very vulnerable and be the clinician up on high and not write about my own vulnerabilities. Because I say at the very beginning that my greatest credential as a therapist is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race that I use my humanity every moment in the therapy room. I'm not talking about my personal life, but I'm using my life experience to help somebody else with their life experience. Um, so at the beginning of the book, I, um, I'm uh, with the, the man that, I, that he and I are planning to get married, and he tells me that he's decided that he can't live with a kid under his roof for the next 10 years. Um, that kid at the time was my eight-year-old, and my eight-year-old, by the way, just so you know, was not hiding in a closet the whole time that we were dating. So, um, so this was, and I, I should say my version of the story, and I want to be very intentional about saying my version of the story, was that, um, well, clearly something was wrong with my boyfriend. Like, you know, who does that, right? Um, and I go to therapy, and I go because I, I want some crisis management and I feel like what I really want is I want my therapist to validate my position. I want him to say, you're right, that guy is a sociopath, you dodged a bullet, um, you know, this is the best thing that could have happened to you. Um, and that's not what my therapist does. But you say you were also kind of holding on to this belief you had that if you had married him, then everything would have been wonderful. So you kind of simultaneously had these two narratives that you believed in deeply. <laughs> One, that he was the worst person ever because he'd done this thing and you were sad. And, and two, that if, if, he, if only you hadn't broken up, everything would have been perfect. Well, yeah, I, there's this saying, you know, if the queen had balls, she'd be the king. And um, 
Um, and, and so, you know, yes, you know, if my boyfriend were a different person, everything would be wonderful, right? Um, but, <laughs> um, but, and, and I want to say, too, that what, what I really wanted to do in this book was he starts off as the villain in the book, and he ends up not being the villain. Because as you see, as I go through my experience and I start to see my role in the situation, as I, I talk in the book about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion, and idiot compassion is what we do with our friends and what I wanted my therapist to do, which was, you're right, he's awful, he's a jerk, he's, you know, all these things. Um, you know, wise compassion is, uh, what a therapist does is, I'm gonna hold up a mirror to you and I'm gonna help you see your reflection in a way that you don't normally look at it. And we're playing the long game here. The short game is, your boyfriend's a jerk. The long game is, what was your role in this? So that it doesn't happen again. Um, so those, those, I think, were the two things that, that were happening at the same time. So you have these other four patients, and um, I wanted to start with two of them because it seemed like what they were experiencing, they were kind of mirror opposites of each other in some ways. So the person, that, I don't know if it's a real name, Julie. Yeah, the names are not real. And, um, For all of you who are like, oh my God, what is my therapist doing? Um, uh, Julie and, and, and Rita. Mm-hmm. which just struck me as, as, like I said, kind of opposing images of each other. And Julie had been um, diagnosed with terminal cancer. She was young. So she was dealing with trying to come to terms with her own death. And then Rita was a real contrast to that, where she was much older, but she was estranged from her children and didn't feel particularly like she had anything to live for. And so there's a you're seeing these people, you're trying to help them through their lives, and they have, I mean, very different problems. I mean, were you ever just tempted to say to Rita, you know, you should meet Julie, <laughs> and then you'll feel better about your life, or did you kind of know that is not really the answer? You know, before... <laughs> it, would, it would be great if it worked that way, but it doesn't because there's no hierarchy of pain. And pain is pain, and suffering is suffering. And I used to wonder before I became a therapist, how would I go from, say, someone like Julie, who's dying of cancer, to the next session where someone says something like, um, you know, the babysitter's stealing from me, or why do I always have to initiate sex? But I think that underneath those, those questions are, is something much more... Um, universal, which is, you know, what do I do when my trust is betrayed? What do I do when I feel rejected and unloved? Um, How do I deal with uncertainty? So we're all asking, basically, how do I love and be loved, and how do I deal with a world of uncertainty? Those would be the core questions that we ask in all kinds of different ways. Um, So the, the patients that I chose, I feel like they look very different on the surface, but we can see aspects of ourselves in all of them. Um, the, the chapters themselves are in conversation with each other. So you have this young woman who goes on her honeymoon and she's in her early 30s and she comes back and she thinks she might be pregnant because she feels something in her breast that they were hoping to get pregnant and it's a sign of cancer and, and at first it's a very treatable form of cancer and then six months later after she's cured of that, she gets this, she, what she thinks is going to be the sign-off scan for her to get pregnant and, um, and she turns out to have this very aggressive rare form of cancer that is not treatable. And how does she deal with that? Rita is this woman who is about to turn 70. She comes to me. She's extremely depressed. Her adult children won't talk to her. She made significant mistakes as a parent. Um, She's very alone. She's had some marriages that didn't work out. Um, She didn't do what she wanted to do sort of career-wise. And um, she says, if things don't get better in a year, I don't want to live anymore. And then you have this woman, Charlotte, who's in her 20s, and she, you know, has this whole vista ahead of her of better choices that she can make. And her issue is that she drinks too much, but she doesn't know it yet. And she, um, she keeps hooking up with the wrong guys, including, as it turns out at some point, um, a guy from the waiting room. And her, um, <laughs> she thinks that's a step up because she says, well, at least he's been to therapy. <laughs> and, and, and the thing is, she has radar for people who are not going to be the kind of person that she wants, ideally yeah. in her mind, that she wants yeah. theoretically. So, so Rita has made all these mistakes already, can't change them. What does she do? Charlotte can make lots of different kinds of choices, 
going forward. And um, and yet I see so much similarity between all of these. It's almost like you see that they're the same person at a different life stage. And right. it could go one way or the other. I wanted to go back to Julie for one second. Um, there's something that she was struggling with that in a way she was in a very loving relationship, very different from Rita, but at the same time, because of her diagnosis, she felt separated from people. And one of the things that she felt separated by were these platitudes when people would say whatever they would say, you know, at least you had a nice life, <laughs> or like, don't worry, it'll be fine, or I know you're going to a better place, or whatever. And she actually, that did not comfort her. Um, yeah, so you had a, some interesting things to say about why it is that people say those things. Right. So often people are very well-meaning, but they say things that make them feel better, and leaving that leaves the person who's really suffering feeling more pain and more isolated and more alone and more misunderstood. In fact, at one point she said to me, I want to write a book called What Not to Say to a Dying Person. And the things that people would say to her would be things like, did you get a second opinion? Um, you know, it's like, no, I didn't bother. <laughs> um, you know, things, you know, and, and it all came because some, one of her coworkers had a miscarriage and someone was saying these things to this coworker like, you know, um, well, at least you can get pregnant again, or, you know, like not really acknowledging the loss that this person was experiencing. And a lot of these losses are silent losses. So, you know, if you lose a child, as somebody in the book does, um, if you lose a child, that's a very tangible loss. And people will often respond much better in terms of comforting you for that. But if you, say, have a miscarriage, it's kind of a silent loss. No one ever met that baby, so no one ever really knows what to do with that. Um, if, in my case, you know, you have a breakup but not a divorce, so, you know, you'll be better in a few weeks kind of thing. Um, those are silent losses, and I think we need to be more aware of what that loss represents for that person. Yeah. Um, so you were talking a minute ago about Charlotte and how she was just drawn to these men who were really probably not ideal. And um, there's something in that you said that most people think they have a, a type but you say our types actually come from what we think is familiar a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. A lot of times we gravitate toward a certain type of person, both romantically and in terms of our friendships. Um, and what we don't realize is we think that we're getting away from the thing that we didn't like from our childhood. Whatever we, we didn't like growing up, we say, I'm going to do the opposite, and I'm going to be with the opposite kind of person when I get older. But instead what happens is the person will look different from the people who disappointed us growing up, but once you get to know them, they're exactly the same. And it's almost like people have radar for them because we cling to the familiar. We cling to something that feels like home, even if home is miserable. Um, at least we know the mores in this, in this country. You know, we're not like being yeah. thrown into this whole new situation. And what people need to do is they need to recognize that pattern, and then they need to realize that when they go out on a date with somebody and you say, oh, I had I, no chemistry, right? Um, did you have no chemistry or did you have no chemistry because that person felt like another country that you're not used to that may actually feel really good to you once you get used to living in another country, once what is familiar to you becomes unfamiliar to you? Right, and you say kind of part of therapy is helping people develop another emotional repertoire that they can have a new kind of relationship that doesn't feel quite so foreign. Uh, I really identified with, uh, there's a paragraph that you wrote about Rita. So Rita is the 70-year-old who was really isolated from her kids and was lonely and wasn't sure she wanted to keep living. And it, the same idea of patterns, that people live out patterns and they're drawn towards the familiarity. I thought this was a really beautiful paragraph that you wrote. She said, she was used to viewing the world from a place of deficit. And as a result, joy felt foreign to her. If you're used to feeling abandoned, you already know what it's like for people to disappoint and reject you. It may not feel good, but at least there are no surprises. You know the customs in your own homeland. Once you step into a foreign territory, though, if you spend time with reliable people who find you appealing and interesting, you might feel anxious and disoriented. All of a sudden, nothing's familiar. You have no landmarks, nothing to go by, and all of the predictability of the world you're used to is gone. The place you came from might not be great, it might, in fact, be pretty awful. But you knew exactly what you'd get there. Disappointment, chaos, isolation, criticism. It's common for people with traumatic histories to expect disaster just around the corner. And this was the line that really stayed with me. 
For Rita, joy isn't pleasure, it's anticipatory pain. Which I thought was just an incredibly powerful description of um, the ways in which we believe in a certain world, we believe that the world is a certain way, and then we actually go out into the world and we make that true. We're attracted to those people, we grow up with a, a certain set of experiences, we think all women are this way or all men are this way, and then we actually move into the world and we, we find those people who will make that true for us. Right, and, and I think too, you know, I think people talk a lot about feelings being the F word, right? Um, that, that, that they're so afraid of their feelings, but they're so afraid of certain feelings like anxiety, depression, um, envy, you know, those kinds of things. Um, but what people don't realize is so many people are afraid of joy, that they spend their lives not going after the things that are joyful. There's actually a word for it, cherophobia. Chero means rejoice in Latin. Um, and it's, it's this idea that if you feel joy in your experience earlier, it always went away, right? The other shoe was always going to drop. And so you always expect disaster just around the corner. So joy feels dangerous. It feels like better not to feel it because the, the fall's gonna be really bad. Well, there's another thing that you talked about that really rang true for me, which was that um, uh, sometimes people think that they can repress the bad emotions that they have. They think, I'm angry, or I'm sad, or I'm frightened. And they repress those feelings, and what they don't realize is you can't actually just turn off one, one feeling. You can't mute one feeling. If you mute one feeling, you end up muting all the feelings. And right, so if, and, and people mistake, you know, they kind of want to distract with all kinds of things. So um, one of my colleagues calls the internet um, the most effective short-term non-prescription painkiller out there. Um, so the internet is one way that we distract from our feelings. We do it with food. We do it with chaos and drama. Um, there are all kinds of things that we do. We do it by, like, tossing it like a hot potato onto somebody else. I don't like my feeling. I'm going to throw it onto you. And then I could go watch Netflix, and I can numb myself with that. Um, so there's all kinds of ways that we, um, that we try to avoid our feelings, but you become numb and people mistake numbness for nothingness, but numbness isn't nothingness. Numbness is too many feelings at once. That's what numbness is. It's being overwhelmed by too many feelings. It's not nothingness. It's something, I mean, I tried to write about this. I don't, I don't think I understood it as well as you do, but, um, in my own, I remember that, that, feeling of invincibility for me was what it was. I, I felt like nothing affects me, I'm fine, it's all fine. And it took me quite a few years to realize that uh, things not affecting me, that actually was the effect. Like that was right. the effect it was having on me is that I was no longer experiencing my life, actually. Right, uh, so there's, there's actually a patient in the book who's a little bit like that. Um, so the first, the first patient that you meet in the book is, is this guy, John, he's... Um, He's about 40, he has two kids, he's married, and he thinks everybody else around him is an idiot, and he's highly su successful, by the way, in his career. And he, um, he kind of thinks that everybody else is, is the problem, that he is invincible in that way, um, except for the fact that he's not really sleeping, and you know his wife's angry with him, and things like that. Um, and he's very unlikable in the beginning. Um, it's a long time that he sees you before you have any idea why he, like really why he's there. Right. You don't know about the loss. Right, 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 I don't, right. You're just kind of there for session after session thinking, why are we doing this? Well, he's very, you know, when I first meet him, he's very abrasive, he insults me, he tells me that he doesn't want his wife to know that he's going to therapy, so he's gonna pay me in cash at the end of the session, just like his mistress. <laughs> he doesn't have a mistress, he's saying like, you'll be like my mistress, he's actually not cheating on his wife. Um, but that's not, nice. says, that's not a great way to talk to somebody. I think. Yeah, well, no, it gets worse because then he says, actually, you're not the kind of person I would choose as a mistress, more like my hooker. <laughs> um, and, and people say, well, why did you see him? Um, and it's because I knew that people's behavior is a way of protecting themselves from something. It's a way of managing their feelings in a very unproductive way. And so the question is, you know, what, what was he really there for? I had a feeling he was there for something that maybe he wasn't even aware of, which it turns out he really kind of wasn't. Well, you get an insight to it. I think you're at a game and you have your son with you and he makes a comment to you. You don't, he doesn't have a son, he has well, a daughter. Right, well, I mean, right. And so I don't, I don't want to spoil sort of what, what it is, but, but 
I miss it, you know, I, I'm looking for clues all the time about what it might be. And what I'm really looking to do in the room with him is to find a way to connect with him, um, to find a way to have an interaction with him that isn't about, he's very funny, and isn't about his jokes, isn't about um, all of the ways that he tries to, you know, like get me off the trail. Um, and it, it's very hard to do. And, and so, um, you know, you do two things as a therapist. One is that you want people to struggle less more quickly. And so you want to kind of speed up, if, if you can, um, helping them to see things about themselves. But you can't go in too early because if they have a wall up, that wall is going to go even higher. And now you're going to have to scale that wall too. So um, there were a lot of times with him where I do very unconventional things with him in order to kind of get around his walls. And I think the, the one thing that's interesting, too, is just like my boyfriend starts off as the villain in the book and ends up not being, John starts off as being you know, somebody who's not very likable to the reader, just like he wasn't to me. But he's the person that people who have read the book say that they, they love the most in the book at the end of the book, that they really you know, they want to embrace him, that they really feel deep affection for him in the way that I came to as well. And I think it shows that we are so complicated as people and that so many people come to therapy and they want to hide the truth of who they are. They want to kind of, you know, present themselves as being different from how they are, sort of how we do out in the world sometimes. And what we really want is we want connection. And the only way we can have real connection is if we don't hide the truth of who we are, that the truth of who we are is the glue. It's what draws people toward you. And it takes a while sometimes for people to really engage in that with you. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. Today's moderator, Tara Westover, wrote a best-selling memoir about being raised in a survivalist family in rural Idaho. Educated details Westover's journey from working in her dad's junkyard to pursuing an education against her family's wishes. Hers is a distinctive story, but she says she hopes readers can relate. I kind of wrote the book in such a way that people, I hoped, could have some little piece of experiences I had. I wanted that to go through a filter of their own lives that would distort it in a way. Hear more from Westover in the episode Educated with Tara Westover. Find it in the Aspen Ideas To Go archive wherever you're listening now. Let's return to our featured conversation. Here's Tara Westover. You had an interesting distinction I in the book. You say there's a difference between uh, secrecy and privacy. Yeah. And the difference, it seems to me, might be shame or something. Yeah, absolutely. Lines. That's right. Um, so much of, of what we decide to do is, is based in shame. Um, Carl Jung called secret psychic poison, and that's because they really are based in shame. They're, they're very toxic. Um, privacy is something different. Privacy is... I need some space for myself. I don't need to tell everybody um, you know, every thought that crosses my mind. We all need those private spaces for ourselves, and that's really healthy. Um, you know, the, the relationships that aren't healthy are where people feel like they have to know every single thing about the other person. Um, secrecy is where you are holding something back because you feel shame around it. And we all keep secrets from the world and from people close to us, but people also keep secrets from the therapist, and they keep secrets from themselves. And often what we're doing in therapy is trying to figure out, you know, what are the secrets that they're keeping from themselves and why? I, I, yeah, I was really interested in that. Um, that idea of, of shame and this idea that there are things that you don't tell people and, and sometimes the reason is healthy. Like you said, you just want a little space for yourself. But sometimes it's because you believe that if you told people the truth about who you are, they would not want to have you in their lives. And then... I think that becomes an engine that feeds so much self-loathing because you end up walking around with this belief that you have to have a, a false self that people will like because your real self is, is not okay. Right, and I think that there's, I noticed something, the difference between a lot of men and a lot of women that I see where men will come in with their secrets and they'll say, I've never told anybody this before. And then what they tell me seems 
you know, it's kind of, it makes me sad for them because I feel like, well, that's something that feels really mild to me that, that, that it's sad that they didn't feel comfortable telling that to anybody in their lives. Women will come in and say, I've never told anybody this before except for my mother or my sister or my best friend. <laughs> um, you know, so there might be one, two, or three people that they may have already told this to, but to them it feels like they haven't really told anyone, that they are holding <laughs> that very, very tightly. Um, so you know, I, I, I do think that what happens is we... Um, it sounds like men and then have a projection in many cases that everyone has to believe in this other self, whereas it sounds the women you're talking about... They're like, I don't want to go public with it, but people who know me really well do know this. And what a better life you could live, really, at least having some people that you feel like really know you. Right, right. Sometimes that's true, but I, I, I think it's interesting that there's so much that people feel like they can't talk to other people about, even if they have close relationships in their lives, even if they're surrounded by people. And I think that's because we have so much stigma around this idea of struggle, that it's really hard for us to talk about our struggles in a in a in a real way with people. And, and even when, I, I mean, I, I think about couples therapy when, when so, many, so often women will say to their husbands, for example, um, you know, I really want to know more about your inner life. And then men tell them about their inner lives or God forbid they start crying. And you see this look of profound discomfort on the woman's face that she said she wanted this, but she's not really open to having that experience with her husband. And then, you know, I, I see this also in same-sex couples, and I see this in, in um, you know, the reverse sometimes too. But I think that we say we want something, and we're not really sure that we're ready for it. And I think part of that is because our culture makes us feel very uncomfortable around these kinds of conversations. I wanted to ask you about the difference between reacting and responding. I thought yeah. that was an interesting distinction that you made. So at one point when I'm complaining about things in my therapy, um, my therapist says um, that I remind him of this cartoon. And he said it's, it's of, a, of a prisoner shaking the bars, desperately trying to get out. But on the right and the left, the bars are open. And... It was really profound for me, like the meaning of life was all contained in this, in this you know, cartoon. But, um, but I thought it was interesting because so many times we think that we're, we're trapped and, and it's so much more comfortable for us to say, you know, I can't get out of the situation. And, and yet we can. All we have to do is walk around the bars, which is what um, responding is. Reacting is, um, you know, doing something that's going to exacerbate the situation. Responding is, what are my options here? I might not like what's happening in the external world. I might not like what this person said to me. I might not like the fact that I'm not happy in this job. But what is my, what is my response to that, as opposed to being reactive to it, which usually gets us into a whole lot more trouble? Well, you told the story of Viktor Frankl and how he had had, I'm trying to remember now, but he had... He had been, he was Jewish in World War II, he was in Europe. He did not leave to go to the United States, even though he had the option, because he didn't want to abandon his family. And at the end of the war, he had lost, I think it was a sibling, his wife, and his parents. And that he's the one who, uh, I don't know if he coined the phrase, but he had a beautiful line that you quote in the book where he says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response in our response lies our growth and our freedom. So this idea that things happen to you that you don't have control over, but you do always have control over yourself and how you respond to them. And that is such an extreme example of, of a life where you would need that. Right. So, you know, so many times we're, we're so concerned about our circumstances. And sometimes there are circumstances we can't change. Um, say you've lost a child. You can't change that. But how do you respond to that? Um, there, and the other thing is sometimes in responding differently to, to sort of more everyday circumstances, in responding differently, you actually change the circumstance. So it's not the other way around. Slightly switching topics. Um, we're all familiar, I think, with the four stages of grief. And this I thought was very interesting from your book where you say, actually, the four stages of grief were designed for people coming to terms with their own death. And you're not... 100% convinced that this idea of closure makes sense when you're coming to terms with another kind of loss. Right. So 
there, there are some stories in the book about um, uh, loss and then also forgiveness. And I think those are two things where people ex, you know, have these ideas about what they are. So I'm gonna start with loss and I'll talk about forgiveness. Um, so with loss, I think a lot of people get other people saying to them, um, you know, it's been five years, uh, you know, those kinds of things. Um, or like they, implying, you're supposed to be over this. It's like... Yeah, or like, you know, are, are you moving on? Uh, you know, people move forward, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they move on. Um, and so the, the Kubler-Ross stages, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, they were not about accepting the death of someone that you loved. They were about accept, going through the stages of accepting your own, they were for people who were terminally ill, like Julie in the book. Yeah. Um, and so this idea that people feel like, they feel this pressure almost that, you know, what's wrong with me if I don't have quote unquote closure around this? Well, if you really loved somebody that much, do you want to have closure around that. You say there's so, this wonderful grief psychologist who replaced that fourth stage, right? With um, with a different the different model, which is integrating the loss into your life. So it's not like the loss is off in a box somewhere, and you're living your life over here as if they're two separate things. It's that the loss lives inside of you in a way, and it's integrated into your life, so that it doesn't keep you from moving forward, but it also lives inside you because it it informed who you are. It was part of your life experience and that person still means something to you. I had one other thing I wanted to say and then I shuffled my pages. While you're doing that, I'll talk about forgiveness. Yeah, oh, please do, go nuts. Um, So Rita really wants forgiveness from her adult children. Um, This story kind of broke my heart, I have to say. This one was, this was a doozy. Right, and it, and it, of course... I cried through the whole second half of this book. I should just come clean. <laughs> but I, I want to tell the you, whole it's thing. really funny. There's funny parts of the book. Too. There are two, there are, but present. yeah, it was, um, this was a powerful story, I thought. But, you know, I think that a lot, of, um, a lot of people have this idea of forgiveness that if you forgive somebody, that you will feel better. And in some cases, for some people, that is true. But it's also true that we have this, this term, forced forgiveness, where people feel like, you need to forgive this person. And so you say, I forgive you, but you don't really forgive them. And then you feel horrible because now you're still sitting with all of those feelings that you had and you're pretending to forgive them for something that you really don't forgive them for. So Rita... And you have a secret. One of those toxic psychological... Yes, right. <laughs> so Rita, Rita um, you know, she was somebody who made some really bad choices with her children that affected their lives profoundly. And all of her children are suffering as adults because of it. And they don't forgive her. Um, And the more that she wants their forgiveness, the less they want to have to do with her. And at some point, she has to come to a place of forgiving herself in some way, which doesn't mean she's off the hook, which doesn't mean she hasn't learned something from it. But it does mean, how can you be a mother to them now? Because you can't change what you did. At a certain point, we all have to come to terms with the fact that we can't change the choices that we made in the past, but we can change the choices that we're making now. And if we keep going in circles, you know, like it's sort of like we keep shooting ourselves in the foot over and over and wondering why we're bleeding. Um, That's what she does with her kids. And at a certain point, she has to stop asking for their forgiveness and stop kind of requesting this forced forgiveness from them because it's kind of irrelevant whether they forgive her. Um, She can have a kind of relationship with them that doesn't involve forgiveness. You had a lovely line with Charlotte, the 20-year-old, about that, I thought, where um, you felt like she was a little bit stuck and couldn't move forward because she wasn't really ready or able to accept the past narrative. And you say um, she had to, at some point, she had to give up the hope for a better childhood Mm -hmm. in order to have a better adulthood. Right, right. That you have to give up the hope for a better past to have a better present and future. And so many people want to kind of like redo the past somehow. And I think there's this big misconception of therapy as you go to therapy, you talk about your childhood ad nauseum, and you never leave. And that is not at all what therapy is, at least therapy that will help you. Um, So everybody's laughing like, oh, oh, no. Um, (laughs) So, you know... You can't, you can't go to therapy and think that you're just going to go and talk every week and talk about your childhood and talk about your parents and then you're going to leave and you're going to come back next week and do the same thing. Um, that gets really boring, not only for me, by the way, but, um, but it gets really boring for you. And so 
when you come to therapy, you have to be both vulnerable and accountable. And that means that insight, we like to say insight isn't the booby prize of therapy. I mean, insight is the booby prize of therapy, I should say. Um, if you you better get that insight, one right. <laughs> insight is the booby prize of therapy. Um, meaning if you just gain insight and you don't make changes in your life outside of the therapy room, the insight is useless. So somebody might say, um, now I understand why I keep getting in arguments with my partner, right? And then they go home and they do exactly the same thing. And then they come back and then they tell you, oh, I understood why I did that. Well, that's great, but um, you have to actually do something different. And I think that that's really important about we're not here to change your past. We're here to help you to understand how the past informs the narrative that you're carrying around about yourself. We have these narratives in our head like I'm unlovable or I'm not worthy or nothing will ever work out for me or in John's case, I'm better than everybody else um, was his narrative. Um, and they protect us. But those narratives are just, they're faulty narratives. And I, you know, I was a journalist for all these years before I became a therapist. And I feel like a lot of what I do as a therapist is I'm an editor as I sit in that chair, that people come in with a story. And I'm looking not only for, I'm listening not only to their story, but I'm listening to their flexibility with the story. Who's the protagonist? Who are the antagonists? And you know, do we have those confused a little bit? Um, is the protagonist going in circles or is the protagonist moving forward? Um, what are some of the, you know, is, is, is the plot, are they like stuck at a certain point in the plot? And how can we rewrite some of these faulty narratives so that that doesn't color every choice, every decision, everything they're doing out in the world every day in the present? There's a really nice, and I'll end on this, and then we can have time for questions. I'm sure you all have a lot of questions. Something that your therapist said to you, which is, the nature of life is to change, and the nature of people is to resist change. <laughs> which I thought summed it up uh, quite well and I just wondered is that kind of what you feel like you're doing in a lot of the therapy that you give people is trying to help them accept change change is really tricky I think a lot of people think that change is going is fully positive right so you're going to do something and you're going to change something about your life that's not working and this new thing is going to be so much better and even if it is there's still loss that comes with change. Change and loss are, are tied together, that you have to give up something that you know that feels comfortable to you. Um, like in Charlotte's case, I used to say that she would like wrap misery around herself like a blanket, that that was what was comfortable to her. So even though she was making positive changes, they were uncomfortable. She had to give up something. Not only did she have to give up a familiar pattern, but she had to give up the bigger loss, which was, I'm never going to get my parents to see me in the way that I wanted them to see me. And if I move forward, I have to fully accept that. You said for a while she tied her own goals of change to theirs, you felt like, and she felt like, I'm going to change only if they change. You said right, right. Lose, it's like a battle deal. that she was in with her parents was, when you change, I will change. Yeah. You know, when you treat me the way that I always wish that out. I could be treated, then I will treat you differently. And we do that in all kinds of ways with, with people in the present, right? You know, if you do this, you know, who's going to start? It's like a, you know, like a game of, you know, like, who's going to do this first? Um, and you have to, you can change yourself. So much in, in, in couples therapy, so many times we, you know, people will say like, but you're not listening to me. And I will say to that person, how well do you listen to that person, right? How well are you listening? You sometimes have to, you can only control the changes that you make and your change will influence other people because everybody's doing a dance with everybody else. And once you change your dance steps, that person is either going to fall flat on his or her face on the dance floor or they're going to have to change their steps. And usually what happens is they change their steps. Something I've noticed about those narratives that we have in our heads and how strictly, it's almost like I feel like the times in my life that I have the most, that I'm the most judgmental towards other people, when I really examine that, it's because I'm upset with myself. Like, I'm not living up to my own ideals, and I can't accept that about myself, and so I get incredibly harsh about everybody else. And the times in my life that I have a more flexible narrative of who I am or I can admit my mistakes a little bit more readily or maybe some of my motivations that aren't perfect are the times that I, I, I'm more flexible with other people and I can see them in a more complicated way. And it's, it's interesting, I think, that there is that, at least it seems to me, that there is this relationship between how kind you are to yourself and how kind you are to other people. And that voice that is in your head, if you're harsh with your own, if you're harsh with yourself, you're going to be very harsh with other people. So when we talk a lot in therapy about self-compassion, we don't mean 
that there's not self-responsibility. A lot of people are afraid to be compassionate with themselves because they feel like they're not going to hold themselves to certain standards, that they're letting themselves off the hook. Um, self-compassion is, you know, if you, if you messed up somehow, you can self-flagellate and learn from the experience, or you can be kind to yourself and learn from the experience. Self-flagellation does nothing to help you learn more from the experience. It's not going to enhance your learning from the experience. In fact, it so will it probably... it can be a way to paralyze you, because you're saying, well, I'm worthless, what do you expect from me, I'm not very good, and then you right. paralyzed by it. Right, but what happens is when we're kinder to ourselves, I actually had a patient write down everything that she said to herself in her head for a few days and then come back and read it to me the next week because she didn't believe that she was as unkind to herself as I guessed that she was. Um, and she came back and she said, I can't read this out loud. It is horrible. I am such a bully to myself. And she did read it out loud to herself. And she's like, nobody would be my friend if I said half of this stuff to them. <laughs> and so when we have self-compassion, we actually are kinder to other people. It allows us to see them in a much fuller way. It allows us to see them not in that reactive way of good, bad, um, you know, nice, not nice, um, but to see them as complicated human beings in the way that we do with ourselves when we have compassion for ourselves. So self-compassion is not only, it not only breeds kindness to yourself, but it breeds compassion out in the world in all kinds of ways. You have that, what I thought was a great line where you say, um, and maybe it was Wendell that said it to your therapist, but you are not the best person to be talking to you about you right now. <laughs> yes, that, that, is, that is when we say that often to people who are depressed because what they're saying to themselves is so distorted by the depression. So what they're saying to themselves, I always say to them, you are not the best person to talk to you about you right now. Like, don't listen to that because it's distorted. It's, it's, it's that if you want fake news, that's fake news. Um, and so, um, you know, I think sometimes we don't realize how distorted our thinking is. And that's one of, I think, the, the beautiful things that therapy can do is that um, it helps you to see yourself much more clearly in a way that nobody out in the world is going to help you do in the same way. Well, I think we have a few minutes for questions. So let's start here. You were saying about the response that you have to someone's loss or whatever really can impact them and actually harm them more. What is some examples of somebody who's lost a child, like what, how you would really support and comfort them? That's such a good question. Um, so one of the things that Julie said were, when she talked about the responses that meant the most to her when she got that diagnosis and just going through that process, um, when people said things like, I love you so much, or, oh, Julie, you know, just anything that just was genuine in the moment, that wasn't scripted, that wasn't walking on eggshells, that just showed how much they cared about her, as opposed to, oh no, what's your prognosis? You know, all the questions, like the, she didn't want to Or maybe to not trying that. to make it okay, because it's not okay. Right, right, exactly. And I, I think there's something too about the timing of what you say. So, you know, what people really want is they want to be heard and understood and listened to. When I, when I was training, a supervisor had said, you have two ears and one mouth. There's a reason for that ratio. And I think that it's a good thing for all of us to keep in mind when we're talking to people that we don't need to fill the silence with words. We have one more here. Thank you to both of you. Um, when reading your books, the stories are so rich and and they become like characters, right? And almost as if you're reading fiction, but then you snap out of it and think, oh, this, these are real people. These are your patients. This was your family. This was your own story. So I'm curious, a question for you, Lori, but it's relevant to you, Tara, as well. So feel free to answer or not answer. But um, has healing continued for your patients since your book has come out? Um, and even for yourself? Or is there some re-traumatization. I mean, I'm curious how they feel about it. I, I assume they gave you permission, or I don't know. Um, but curious of what the aftermath is. It, it heals and helps so many of us and all of us in this room, but curious about those particular people whose lives were really the ones that were talked about. I, I'd be curious to hear what you have to say about this also. But for me, writing about it, and I think for the patients who were in the book being written about their experiences in this way, is very healing. Um, it helps people to see sort of where they were and where they've come since then, how, how they've grown. Um, it helps them to, um, again, I think, have more compassion for themselves. Um, and, and I think certainly for me, even in the writing of it, 
Um, so you have, it's sort of like this meta thing, right, where I experienced therapy, I grew in my therapy, then I wrote about it, then people started reading about it. Um, when I gave the draft, the first draft to my editor, she saw um, similarities and, and, you know, like the, way, the ways that all the stories are woven together. Um, she saw aspects of me in my patients and of my patients in me in ways that I hadn't even thought of at the time. So I came to even new insights as, as I was writing it. Um, so for me, it was, a, it was a really interesting experience in ways I hadn't anticipated. But I, I wonder what um, it's like for you. I think, I think for some people that I wrote about, some members of my family, it was helpful, it was healing, and I think for others it was a real struggle. And uh, it was not the people I thought it would be, I guess. I would say I was surprised. You never quite know how people are going to react to you saying what you think of what you remember, what you think about a relationship with a person. So I was, I was surprised. I, I knew some people would struggle, and I thought it would help some people. I was surprised by who was in each of those camps. Um, I think we had one more question here. First, I want to say thank you um, for this. It's really been extremely impactful. Um, and are you taking any new patients? <laughs> um, <laughs> but Thank the, you. That's, the, that's the real question, and, and actually, I, I would love to know. But um, I, um, if it's all about vulnerability, have been in and out of therapy for um, twenty years. Um, I, I went through a very difficult divorce, two young boys, and it was my ex-mother-in-law that um, suggested I go see someone, whom I saw for fifteen years, and it didn't help. I'm, <laughs> and it never dawned on me that I should have my own relationship. But the question is, how do you go about finding a good therapist? I, I am finally, and this is why I think this session has been so impactful, I'm finally with someone good. Mm-hmm. And she's, we've, we've gone through a lot of this. I, I'm asking this for other people mm-hmm. because good it's question. hard for, you know, it's hard to find a good therapist. And right. It's, it's a very trusted relationship that when you do start to invest in it, you don't know you're going down the wrong, the right, or wrong road. Right. One of the things that surprised me um, was when I was training to be a therapist, I, a supervisor said that um, she was trying to tell us how important the relationship was going to be with our patients. And study after study shows that the relationship you have with your therapist is going to predict the success of your therapy more than the therapist's training, the modality they use, the years of experience that they have. Not that those things don't matter, but that they're not as important as the relationship that develops in that room. And when you go for a first session, um, it's really like a consultation. It's not like you're here and you're stuck. Right? And I think people feel really uncomfortable because they don't know that. And they don't know how to kind of, if it didn't go well, to kind of not come back. Um, and so I would say after first session, ask yourself, did I feel understood? Was this person easy to talk to? And if those two things happened, I would go back for a second session. One of the beautiful things about therapy is that nothing gets swept under the rug. So if as you're going through your therapy, you start to feel uncomfortable, you start to feel like the person isn't, you know, something's not right in the relationship. We love it when you bring that up. We want you to bring that up because you're not going to get any work done in that room if you don't bring it up. And if it's not the right fit, you know, it might be that something else is going on and it is the right fit, but if it's not the right fit, we're more than happy to give you a referral and try to get you in the right place because our goal is to help people. So Tara, when you answered that question a couple questions ago, I was thinking about it differently, um, and I'm wondering from your perspective, was this therapeutic to you, reading the book? Was it therapeutic to you in, in all the stories that you've had from your entire life? It was, because I got a chance to, um, there was a lot of things that are put forward in a, 
in categories, in juxtapositions that are ways for me to understand differently. You know, the difference between pain and suffering that you put in there and privacy and secrecy gave me new ways of thinking about my life. Um, and I had a really emotional experience reading this book. I mean, I really did cry many times, and I think that can be a form of cathartic. So I did. I did find it. I did find it helpful because it was a, it was a metaphysical view of, of what was happening with these people and what were they trying to achieve. And sometimes I think we're clinging so strongly to our own narratives, we're not really ready to let go of them, but we can see why other people might need to let go of their narratives, and I think it bleeds over, you know. That, that was my experience of it. We're gonna ask... I, I'm gonna say one, oh, one yeah, thing so about yeah. that, is um, I think that one of the things that, as humans, is just sort of universally true is that we can see ourselves and our, our you know, like what we're doing so much more easily through the story of somebody else. So if we see an aspect of ourselves in somebody else's story, we learn a lot about ourselves. It's so much easier than someone saying, you do this. But if you see somebody else do that, you say, oh, I wonder if I do that. Um, and, and I think that that gives people an opening to kind of look at themselves differently. And the other thing is that therapists aren't wizards and we don't like keep secrets. You know, it's not like we have all these tools and techniques and we're going to hide them from you. I'm very open in the book about here's what I'm thinking and why I'm thinking. Here's why I'm not going to give advice in this moment. Here's where I will give advice. Here's whether or not I like this person and why. Um, so we, you know, here's how I can get this person to change, even though I have to come in. I was a chess player growing up, so it's almost like you know, you're thinking sort of three moves ahead as a, as a therapist. And here's why I'm doing this right now. It seems really strange, but I'm thinking about what's going to happen down the road with this intervention. We want you to understand the process. It's not like we're behind a curtain and then you guys are just our guinea pigs. We want you in that process with us, and that's what I'm trying to do in the book is open that up so there, aren't, there isn't this kind of mysterious air around therapy. I think that's actually a pretty good place to end. Thank you so much for the book. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. Lori Gottlieb wrote, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which is a New York Times bestseller. The book is being developed as a television series with Eva Longoria. Gottlieb is a psychotherapist who writes The Atlantic's weekly Dear Therapist advice column. Tara Westover is a writer and historian known for her memoir, Educated. They spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Jonathan Melgard, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.